we should applaud the song that they ended that with, if not the speech. Because actually, Gordon Gecko was right. This is the gospel of Gecko delivered by Greco this morning, in case you <laughs> haven't had enough. And he's right. Greed works. Greed, I'll say in the middle of a series on generous, dangerous generosity, greed is good. The problem is that greed is only good for everything that's bad, but it works. And it's good, but it's good for everything that's bad. Now, before we move too much further in this message, I think it's important for us to define our terms, to get some idea of what I mean by greed. So this won't be a perfect definition, but at least gets us a little closer. Greed is basically the unreasonable hoarding of resources. It's not having things, it's the unreasonable hoarding of resources. Greed involves being presumptuous about our future. The hoarding for yourself of what you will most likely only leave to someone else. Greed is a clear sign of an unbiblical understanding of that future because it assumes that what we experience now is all there is to our future. It's sure evidence of an unchristian worldview and a broken purpose in life. Greed, as Jesus will explain in the text we're going to be in this morning, is what he calls the opposite of being rich toward God. Greed is the unquenchable thirst for more. There's an old proverb that said, greed is like drinking from the ocean. The more salt water you drink, the thirstier you are, the more you drink. And the more you drink, the more you kill yourself the closer you get to killing yourself. Greed is like that. It's also important in defining terms to speak sometimes about what we don't mean by a term. Greed is not, and this is an important, these are important corrections. Greed is not the same as wealth. When our children were younger and more idealistic, they used to, they wouldn't nuance ideas that well, as is normal for people who are growing up and transitioning. And they thought, well, wealth and greed, that's the same thing. So the, the bad logic of that is you come to the conclusion that wealth is a bad thing, and anybody who has wealth is the enemy. It's important to recognize greed and wealth are not the same thing, financial wealth. They're not the same. It's greed that's the sin, not wealth. In fact, Jesus had many wealthy friends that supported his ministry, and they stayed wealthy throughout his ministry, and he loved them. They were considered some of his dearest friends. They were no doubt incredibly generous with all of their wealth. But just remember, greed is not the same as wealth. Greed, neither is greed the same as what I call an ethical ambition. Greed should have no part in our lives, but ambition can be a very good and helpful thing. Ambition can be good for things that are good. Greed can't. So an ethical ambition, that's not what we're talking about when we speak of greed. Greed is the unreasonable acquisition or hoarding of resources, not the ethical collection of them and distribution of them. So ambition, that's good. 
And then this is a little tougher to explain, but I think it's important. Greed is not a sin you've committed so long as you're aware that there's somebody that has less than you have. Remember that old saying on the, on the TV westerns, there's always a faster gun in town eventually, or the, however they said it. Remember those, those, I don't know, if, I said in the first gathering with him here, I don't, I don't know for sure if they use that terminology, but I was gonna ask Al Wade afterward because our, our Al Wade, he was there in those Western days back in the day. And he knows whether they really said that or not. There's always a faster gun in town. Listen, no matter how poor you are, there's always somebody more poor than you. No matter how wealthy you are financially, there's always somebody wealthier than you. So greed is not a sin you've committed just because you're aware that there's somebody else that needs your resources more than you seem to need them. Got to get beyond that, uh, that guilt. That's something that ethical people of financial wealth struggle with, and we ought to be sensitive to that. People who love the Lord and, and have given their whole lives to Him, who happen to have financial wealth that's extraordinary, they are tormented by their success. Many of them can't figure out how to give it away fast enough because they have the idea, oh my gosh, there are so many needs in the world and why in the world should I have an extra car in my garage? I mean, it's that kind of a mentality. That doesn't mean they're greedy. So it's not what the sin you've committed if you happen to be, have more than somebody else. But greed is good. Problem is, it's good for everything that's bad. And there's a practical problem for Christians. Because many of us, even by the definition I've given, struggle with greed. At least seasons in our lives where we experience greed. We're good at figuring out, though, how to make it sound okay to struggle with greed. The fact is, there is no place, not an inch of space, in Christian teaching, in the life and heart of Jesus, for this poison called greed this unreasonable hoarding of resources. Greed, we're talking about generosity in this series, and this particular message, generous doings, generosity of hands, things like Barnett experience at the grocery store. We're talking about that. We have to understand greed is kryptonite to generous actions. Greed kills generous habits. Greed undoes generous doings. It's bad for them. And here's why. And this, this morning's message, we're going to look at Luke chapter 12, take some lessons from the teaching of Christ, all answering the question, why is greed only good for what's bad? Why is it such a, an effective opposition to dangerous generosity, to the kind of giving heart that Jesus encouraged us to have, and by the way, that God modeled for us when he sent Christ. Greed is good, but it's only good for what's bad. Greed is only good, first point, for self-obsession, for self-absorption. And you almost can't find a more, uh, a stronger antonym for Christianity than self-absorption. And greed is only good for self-absorption. Look at verses 13 through 21, through 20. 
Jesus is approached by someone in the crowd who says to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now that's not too weird. That was a normal experience for rabbis. If you have a dispute, a legal dispute, you could go to a rabbi, it was a normal practice. You go to a rabbi and say, Rabbi, uh, give us an opinion on this. What should we do? What does the law teach? Here's what we're, get this, help us get this figured out. That was common, that, was, that often happened. But Jesus has no, not, he's not gonna have anything to do with it. In fact, he's rather short with his response. He doesn't offer the man a response that starts with his name or even my son or my child or blessed friend. He says, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? That's, the, that's, that's Aramaic for, dude, what? Come on, dude, what? See, it doesn't feel real warm. It's a little bit short. Like, come on, dismissive almost. He says, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, so you have this, in this discussion, you have Jesus speaking to the young man who asked him the question, and he's back and forth. And now he's talking to, to his disciples. So he uses this as a teaching moment, a teachable moment. It says that he turned to them, and he said, with this guy still standing here, I guess, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man, he's already rich, right? The ground of a sort, he has barns full of stuff because he's already rich. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, now what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Why? Because my barns are already full of crops. I have no place to store this abundant harvest. Then he said, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger barns and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, self, you have plenty of grain laid up for many, many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. We are in the tall cotton, baby, thank you very much. I have it made. This is the modern equivalent of how long should my new yacht be? It's like, oh, man, I don't even, I, I can't think of anything to buy. I probably should go shopping and see if some display window can call out to me and create a need in me I didn't even know I had and not even worry about the price tag. I mean, that's what this guy's doing. Let me see. Eat, drink, and be merry. I have it made. I, I, am, I am so blessed by God. What shall I do? I'm so, st my barns are stuffed so full, I don't even know where to put the new, the new crop. But God said to him, Jesus is still teaching this parable, you fool. Now listen, many of us say, I wish God would speak to me. I need so much to hear from God. But you don't want him to answer your prayer with those words, right? Oh, you fool. That's like a big uh-oh. You fool, you're, you're worrying about where to put your new crop. You're drawing the plans in your mind already and trying to figure out which contractor you're gonna have and thinking what else, maybe you can add a, a gymnasium off the side, you know, and a new pool along with your barns. Get all these plans. And you don't know that this very night you're gonna choke on a chicken bone and die. You're not gonna pound one nail. Can you just imagine that in that parable, this is a parable, so we're not really 
teaching all the details, nor did Jesus mean for us to. But in that scenario, I could just imagine all of those who would inherit from this man laughing like crazy because they're going to receive what he thought he had stored up for his future. You know what greed is good for? Because it's good. The problem is it's only good for things that are bad. Greed is only good for self-obsession. The great commentator William Barclay on greed said, never does greed see beyond itself. It just can't see beyond itself. Greed never sees beyond its own world. Greed only cares about itself. He says, greed doesn't take God into account when making any decisions. Perhaps that's why Jesus is so aggressive in the language he uses in this text. See that verse 15 that I read? Jesus said to them, now watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. He didn't say it like I just said it. He didn't say, now watch out. You know, be careful here. Step carefully. The language Jesus uses in that warning is the language of a fight. Jesus, in effect, says, watch out for a lot of stuff. But when greed starts creeping up, put up your dukes. Take a stand. It's fight language. Defend yourself at all costs. Sharpen your sword. Tighten your belt. Punch that greed right in the nose. Don't mess around with it. Don't dance with it. Don't flirt with it. Don't be nice to it. Don't be kind to it. This is no time for a detente. This is so dangerous, Jesus is saying. But the only way to deal with encroaching greed and the temptations to hoard and and to, to just keep more, keep more, keep more, never give, never buy anybody's groceries. The only way to deal with it is with violence. Knock it right to its knees. This is one of those fights. You know, I don't know if you use this language, but when I was punk and could, I didn't really couldn't fight. I just thought I could fight. But back in the day, you know what I'm talking about. Is get with some guy offends you or something, and, and you say to him, "This is one of those times when we're going to find out find out who can kick who's who, who who can win, which one of us can beat the other. We're going to find out right now. You want to dance? This is what Jesus is saying. We do with greed when it approaches. Sometimes people say, "Why in the world do you tip everybody? Tip everything? You have to tip, 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 tip. You know what? Why I tip? I don't tip really for them primarily." I tip because I'm afraid of who I'll become if I don't. I tip because I have a propensity toward greed, toward self-absorption, self-obsession. Jesus says, don't mess with it. You know, greed is usually too busy complaining about the growing worry its wealth is creating to have time to ever consider dangerous generosity, the practice of generous doings. Greed says things like, oh my, whatever shall I do with all of this new abundance I now have to add my previous, to my previous abundance? It's such a worry. My life is so stressed. Because what am I going to do? My taxes are going to be so high now. And how, where am I going to store this? And what am I going to invest? Oh, I have so much pressure on me. If you look in this parable, you'll see me and my and I all over the place. No matter which language you translate it from, 10 or 12 times, it shows up. 
One kid was asked one time, what, kind, what figure of speech me and my and I are? And he said, they are aggressive pronouns. I think they're obsessive pronouns, and we need to be careful of them. Greed just can't look beyond itself. Jesus is saying defend against it. Defend against the foolishness of defining life and personal value by what you have in your safe deposit box or your storage unit. Greed says good stewardship demands that I store this wisely because we know how to baptize our greed. Make it sound Christian. God says, in fact, good stewardship may demand that you give it wisely and never have to store it at all, especially in your abundance. Be careful. Greed is good, but it's only good for self-obsession. It is a temptress. Is that the word? Temptress assassin. It will kill us cuts our throat with a sharp knife and watches us bleed. Second reason that greed is the enemy of generosity, of dangerous generosity and generosity of hand, generous doing. Greed is only good for self-obsession, but greed is only good for what I call a truncated perspective. It serves to build in us a truncated perspective on life and the world. By truncated, I mean a narrow, or restricted, or an incomplete perspective. It's a perspective inclined to slide the decimal point, whichever way it needs to go, to benefit the one who's sliding it. Greed does that to our perspective. It's a perspective that blinds people to what's been called the rest of the story. And it misrepresents the meaning of true abundant life. So greed is that thing that whispers in us and says, that's not life, that's life. And it blinds us to what true life is. It messes with our perspective on the world and on life. In verse 21, Jesus says, This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not, and there's that phrase, is not rich toward God. And then in verse 23, we'll come back to verse 22. For life, and here's this perspective, life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Those were... uh, Figures of wealth, those were like coinage today, food and clothes. Consider the ravens, which by the way would have been an unclean bird to the Jews. He didn't say consider the doves, he didn't say consider the chickens, he didn't say consider anything kosher. Consider even the most unkosher crow. They don't sow or reap, they have no storeroom or barn. God, yet God feeds them, and they're not even kosher. How much more valuable are you than birds? Greed is good, but it's only good for a truncated perspective. It helps our our blindness. It fogs the way we see things around the edges. One commentator put it this way. I love this phrase. He said, Jesus came to bring People to God, not property to people. Jesus came to bring people to God, not property to people. And I'll add to that, and I think he implies it, when he does bring property to people, he intends for those blessed people to use that property to bring people to God. That's what Jesus is all about. 
Helping people find life. People like us understand what true abundant life is. That's why the Lord came. And we need to protect that perspective. Greed hinders generous hands. It hinders generous doings by serving to reverse the perspective and, and cause us to see things as though we believe, as though Jesus taught that he came to bring property to people. Then we call that, we know how to baptize that too. We call it blessing. That's what this is all about, God blessing you. Let me tell you what that is, okay? I want you to hear this very clearly. I'm not gonna stutter, ready? That is just so much, well, we have letters for that. That is not Christian gospel. Christian gospel is live a life that's so full and so rich, you can die to yourself and find great pleasure in seeing others have a chance to live. That's, the Christian, that's not the real popular Christian message, but it's the faithful one. And then Jesus uses this term, rich toward God, which is also about perspective. So I don't want to be just rich by definition X. I want to be rich the way God defines rich, rich toward God. That's the wealth I really seek. It might be added to my other wealth, but that's the wealth I really seek. It's presented as the opposite of greed. And here's some of what it means to be rich toward God. To be rich toward God means to be rich in the things of God, rich in divine doings, divine preferences, divine prerogatives, divine actions. And all you need to do to know what God's divine actions look like is read the life of Christ. And, and if, if we have a wealth of those kinds of practices and values and ways of treating people and ways of living and ways of laughing and ways of enjoying life, that's being rich toward God. Being rich toward God is to see that there's a greater type of wealth than abundance of extra grain. That's a good thing, it's not a bad thing, but there's another kind of wealth. There's a greater wealth than abundance of grain. Being rich toward God means that you have the perspective that reminds you that ownership, hear me, ownership is a myth. We don't own anything. And I don't mean to say we don't own anything, God owns everything, so nothing is ours. That's true. But practically speaking, we don't own anything. At very best, we have a lifetime lease on stuff. Ownership is a myth. And it's a myth that trips us up. We need to live not like this, but like this. Because I'm not going to eat all the grain that gets stuffed into that barn anyway. In fact, it may be passed on to somebody who doesn't appreciate it at all and doesn't even understand all my hard work. Being rich toward God recognizes that perspective. It recognizes that abundant life is not necessarily connected with abundant financial resources. Now, trust me, abundant financial resources, if you can have it, take it. It's good. It's great. It's wonderful. You can do all kinds of good with it. But abundant life isn't necessarily limited to that. It's not necessarily connected with that. Being rich toward God is to understand that there are many types of wealth. And that since there are many expressions of wealth, you understand what I mean by that? There's financial wealth. Some people don't have financial wealth, but they have relational wealth. Some people have intellectual wealth. Some people have, you know what I'm saying? There are many types of wealth. And being rich toward God understands that. And it doesn't value one version of wealth over the other. But being rich toward God also recognizes 
that every single human being on earth, since there are many types of wealth, every single one has extraordinary wealth, and then hear this, an extraordinary poverty. The financially wealthiest person you know has extraordinary poverty. And the financial, financially poorest person you know has some version of extraordinary wealth. Being rich toward God understands that perspective and lives with the humility that it brings. By the way, this is for another sermon. But if that's true, then the trick is to be aware of my poverty and connect with somebody whose wealth can address my poverty. If I have a lack of joy, and that's where my poverty is, somebody with wealth there can address my poverty. And my wealth can address somebody else's poverty. That's for another time. Be rich toward the things of God. That same commentator that I mentioned earlier said, real riches are a treasure that does not fail, found in purses that do not grow old. And that is so true. Greed is good, but it's only good for what's bad. It's good for a truncated perspective. And God wants to heal that perspective. It's always going to hinder the practice of generosity. And then finally this. Greed is good, but only good for what's bad. It's only good to fuel worry. Greed fuels worry. Verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. I got this. Can you own that one? I have this. I got it. I got you. Do not worry about your life, what you're going to eat. Don't worry about your body, what you're going to wear. How are you going to pay those bills that leak in the roof? Work, but I, I got this. I have you covered. He goes on to say, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? You can't add the smallest lifespan to your life by worrying. But greed and worry, they're kissing cousins. Because greed is afraid that it might find the day that it doesn't quite have enough. Because it's never going to have enough. And worry loves that. Worry fans that flame. Worry goes along with greed. Greed is good, but it's only good for things that are bad. It's only good for things that poison us, that slow us down, that haunt us, that keep us from the kind of generosity that brings true freedom. And Jesus says, when he says, don't worry, he's actually saying, it's a statement against the practice of greed, the entertaining of greed, and the worry that goes along with it. Who can even add a minute to their life? Since you can't do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wild flowers grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor and wealth financial wealth, was dressed like one of these. And if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown in the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? So these grasses on the sides of the field that Jesus probably pointed to when he said that, there wasn't a lot of timber around there. They would gather these grasses, these dry grasses, and use them for their cooking and, and, and their warmth. That was the fuel for the fire. Jesus, Jesus is saying, God cares about all this. And then in the, in the middle of all those grasses would be these flowers that would break out in the spring. You'd have whole hills that were red and beautiful with these flowers. God cares, cares about crows. God cares about grass that's going to be burned. Relax. 
Read Psalm 46 again, Jesus must have said once in a while. Where at the end it says, be still and know that I am God. I have got you. I got you. I'm the God who sat by and grinned from ear to ear the day you took your first steps. I got you. I'm the God who caught you when you fell all those times and you didn't even know who was catching you. I got you. Don't drink that poison of worry. Instead, go on an adventure with me where I get to show you just how strong your faith is. I have you. Don't worry. You can't add anything to your life by worry, but you sure can shorten your life by it. And he says, don't set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. That's how the pagan world runs. This is a command that Jesus offers. And when he offers his command, he assumes that it's doable or he wouldn't offer the command. He says, be rich toward God instead because greed fuels worry. And here's how you combat it. Be rich in trust that God will provide for us and live into the freedom from hoarding and obsessing after unreasonable surplus. Not worrying is part of being rich toward God, but instead we do our best, because this, an, an, this isn't a teaching to be passive or lazy, just let everything go, let everybody take care of you. Do. No, it assumes that you work hard and do your best and you plan on your thing. You certainly plan for your future. There are other biblical teachings that teach us to do that. You save and you, you do the best you can so that you won't get to the point where your children, where, where so, you have to depend upon somebody else. And sometimes we can't pull that off. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's not telling us to be lazy and passive. Here's what it's saying. Work hard, think well, live with joy, and then trust God with the outcomes. That's what this lack of worry, denying worry, is all about. Not laziness, trust. Now, in every one of these messages, we've been talking about how living this way is dangerous. And there's no difference here. This is dangerous, this opposition to greed. And it's going to be costly. And here are some of the reasons. And I'm going to go through these pretty quickly and then finish up. And as I'm finishing up these... Have the band come on up and make their way up. This is dangerous, costly. And here are some reasons why. This sort of lifestyle brings us into direct conflict, conflict with much of what has been put forward as being truly American and truly Christian and approved by God. You, you spit in the face of greed and it will sometimes look like you're spitting in the face of the American way. But what's even more sad than that to me is we have reconstructed Christianity so severely that sometimes opposition to greed and acquiring looks like we're in opposition to God blessing us. This is a costly decision. There's a second reason it's costly that I'll focus on today. Living like this will force us, will force us to the kind of spiritual maturity that confronts the lies that we've baptized about our own giving and wealth, including our financial resources and the uses of them. 
This is where it gets a little uncomfortable for some people. I mean, let's just deal with the elephant in the room. If you don't give, I don't get paid. But I'm not motivated. To, that's just the way it is. Okay, that's the elephant in the room. Everybody gets it. We pay for our staff and our ministries by the things we give. So, you know, I don't really care. None of us entered the ministry of being pastors to get paid. If we wanted to get paid, trust me, we would have gone some other direction. Although our church is incredibly generous. That's not what this is about, though. Here's what this is about. Living with an opposition to greed actually forces us to reconsider our own practices. <laughs> and I'm challenging you, we all would challenge the whole church. And if we don't, we're not faithful pastors to say, align the practices of our lives with our wealth, financial wealth in particular here, with the teachings of Jesus. That's Christianity. And we've baptized all sorts of crazy things as true when they're not true. Like, well, I don't have to give financially because I don't make that much. I give with my time. No, we give everything to the Lord. You're going to have to confront those things. Boy, I certainly have to confront them regularly. That's why this is a dangerous way to live. My favorite, though, is that this is dangerous because it's a danger to greed and worry greed itself and worry itself. Living with dangerous generosity, living with open hands, puts greed and worry at risk. And it puts at risk everything that they support that is unhealthy and poisonous. Everything that God defines as bad and unhelpful. Listen to this last text, the way that Jesus finishes up his teaching. Because he recognizes how we're going to feel after he teaches that. And he says this, do not be afraid, little flock. Don't be afraid, my children. For your father, listen to this, has been pleased to give you the whole stinking kingdom. I, I don't think stinking is in the original Greek, but the force of it is. Your father has been pleased to give you the whole kingdom. Check out your inheritance. You're going to own what's in that barn someday. Live with the freedom of generosity. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. Treasure in heaven that will never fail. Well, where no thief comes near, no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. As I conclude this message, I want to encourage you to remember just a couple of things. First, make no mistake about it. Our treasures and our hearts are already in the same place. They're in the same place. Greed is good, but it's only good for leading our treasures and our hearts down the path to the wrong place. It's an unholy hired assassin, and it's very effective at ensuring that generous hands are never a dominant part of our lives. Greed does that. It's a fast and efficient way to kill true Christianity. That's why Jesus uses such strong language in commanding us to put up our dukes against all forms of it, to punch it, punch it square in the nose with a strong right hook of generous doings. Because if greed is generosity's kryptonite, an open hand is its metabolic steroid. Do you get that? 
Second thing to remember, where your treasure is, there your heart will be, is not only a statement of fact for us, but also for God. Where his treasure is, that's where his heart is. His heart is with his treasure. And guess where God's treasure is? God's treasure is you. That means his heart is with you. He invested everything in humanity, gave up everything for humanity, died and rose again as we'll celebrate on Good Friday and Easter for human beings, even the least of them. When we resist the wooings of greed through generous practices, he's there with us in the battle. When dangerous generosity is chosen over pointless hoarding and worry, he celebrates not from afar, but from right alongside us. Maybe that's why the practice of generosity, though very, very difficult, feels so good. <laughs>